Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montessi with James Begley. Today we've got something different. James and I have recently launched a new show called Off Field, and it focuses on the world of sport outside of the arena with the people who make it happen. We talk to sports stars and industry professionals about sports marketing, business, contracts, endorsements, leadership, and more. The show is available on your favourite podcast player, but for this episode, we've put together some highlights from a few of our interviews. We've got Aussie netballer Caitlin Bassett and Techno Motorsports owner Jonathan Webb. First up, though, is boxing legend Danny Green, who we caught up with around his blockbuster fight with Anthony Mundine. And don't forget, check out offfield.co for the full interviews. That's off-field.co. But as an event, though, it's a, it's a massive spectacle. It's at Adelaide Oval. How did it all come about? I'm talking outside of the ring. Who made the first call? How does government get involved? Look, it's been going for 10 years, 10 and a half years. When we had the fight, we had a rematch. That never happened. He wouldn't, he, he, he didn't take the, he, he wouldn't do the rematch. It was supposed to happen in 2007. He then, um, you know, went the other way, called me out of retirement. I won the light heavyweight world title, moved up the fight after, and then moved to, um, to moved to light heavyweight, and then won the, the WBA light heavyweight title against the champ, Stipe Truce, and then retired for a year. And then uh, he called me out of retirement to do the fight in 2009, starting in 09. I said, all right, cool, let's do it. So he personally called you or his manager called you? No, he's on the media as usual. He doesn't. He ain't got the balls to ring me and talk to me, which is fine. He could if you would. No, I'd, I'd take the call. Sweet, let's talk. Let's do business. That's what you do. He's not like that. He's not. He's not. You know, strong mentally, or you know, he's not like a. He's not a bloke like that. So, um, he did it through the media, and the media huge press conference came out of retirement, flew in a you know super over on a helicopter, and then you know the Channel Seven News chopper doing the the, the, the traffic on the way, and then um, he decided to go the other way. It's crazy. So then, you know, it's been on and off for, for, for a long time and it's now here. But he's only doing this because he – and I was pursuing it obviously because it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a great fight. It's a great thing. As a prize fighter, you fight for the biggest prize. You know, that's, that's what you do. You don't get punched in the head for nothing. You want to get the biggest prize and this is the biggest prize out there for me in this country. And um, so I pursued it and I was patient and he had absolutely no other options. And lucky for him and me – that at the end of our careers, this is one of the biggest fights we'll have um, as far as, uh, you know, as your prize go. And so commercially, I mean, mate, I don't expect you to give away, um, you know, confidential information, but, I mean, I know I know how some rock bands work. They work on a set fee and then they get a percentage of gate or they get, you know, some bonuses. I mean, how do, how do you structure a deal like this for you? Uh, look, <clears throat> I guess I'm unique because I'm my own promoter. I started promoting myself back in 2002. I thought I'm going to I'm the one that's taking the punishment. I'm the one that's kind of bringing the crowd. I'll, 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 I might as well take the lion's share. So it's it's been added pressure too in, in a lot of ways, but um, it's enabled me to, I guess, um, take the lion's share of what, what goes on and what, what I earn and not having to whack it up and give to another promoter and a manager and this and that when it really is, I, I, it's not necessary because and I, I kind of sometimes I look back and wish I had someone um, doing it for me a long time and ago. And is that because it's difficult to trust people or what? what like, why have you gone a, a, alone as opposed to, yeah, bringing someone on board to act on your behalf? Because I didn't need anyone else. I could do it myself and I was smart enough to do it myself and then I put people in place. I had people around me that I trusted and I put them in place. My mate Molly um, has been my mate since I was nine, a close friend, and uh, is my accountant also just by, you know, by chance. And then, you know, he's, he's followed me all over and, and then decided to put some people together and form Grimmish and Boxing um, and then uh, that was it. So that, that was fantastic. So... It's it's in effect I had a had a promoter, but I was kind of calling the shots and we're kind of doing it together. 
Um, and if I needed something done, hey, mate, can you do this, please? Or if someone, you know, wanted something, they'd kind of ring up him. Or it was kind of difficult. I didn't really have a, a – in your game in football, you have a – you guys always generally had a manager and he kind of, you know, he'd call the shots and would bring things to you. So in that way, I kind of didn't have – I may, may have missed out on opportunities, but in other ways, it's been, it's been far more beneficial to me and it's been, um, it's been way better. Here's Australian Diamonds netballer Caitlin Bassett on the evolution of netball. You said you dreamt of doing playing netball full time. Um, I mean, have you had a full time salary playing netball since you started, or is it gradually built up? No. So uh, my first contract with the Perth Orioles, I remember, uh, was fifty dollars, and I was really confused. Per game? No, no, that was like my whole year. Uh, yeah. just, a, just a pineapple. Here yeah. You go. And um, I, <laughs> oh, well, no, they, yeah, well, it was tax as well. So what was that? Um, and I was really confused because I was like, do I give that? Do I pay that to you? Or you're, you're giving that to me, and I get my uniform every week. Like, and we, you pay for me to travel. And so at that age, I was sixteen, and it was really exciting. And I guess um, I. I was still at school, um, but I had girls who were in the same team who were working full-time to support themselves, and they were probably getting a bit more than 50 bucks, but it would have been, you know, a couple of grand max to play for an entire season. Um, so the the change that we've seen across the last decade in particular has been huge, but there's still a long way to go, and I've never been a full-time athlete, um, and I'm still, no, and I'm still not. Um, and so it is about being smart and balancing um, work-life commitments, but I think for me... I'm actually glad um, that I've had the opportunity to work and study because the transition for me out of sport um, is going to be a much easier one and um, it's so easy compared to other sports but I I kind of look at AFL and um, it must be tough for a rookie player to come in and be earning a significant amount of money and then through injury or non-selection to have that taken away and have nothing um, would be really tough. So we encourage, regardless of who's on what money and what, everyone to be doing something outside of netball. What else are you doing? What what does your week look like? Yeah, so um, it's kind of different now that I've moved, but in Perth it was um, I would obviously do a training session in the morning. Um, I would go to uni during the day. Um, what are you studying? Broadcast and journalism. Oh, so it kind of ties in really well. Um, or I would do sponsor commitments. So um, I had a sponsorship with Telstra and I run their cyberbullying program, which was awesome. I did my own clinics um, and things like that. So it was it was just making sure that I had that backup um, just to keep me going because when netball would finish, we would only have a six-month contract. And so at June, July, I would not be getting any more payments and I would transition into Diamond's environment, but there would always be a gap of a couple of months where I would be having no income. So it was all about being smart and making sure I was putting money away during the season to kind of cover that period. So just for a bit of perspective for the listener, how what's the kind of range of what a netballer would earn from a, a youngster, a rookie coming in to a team through to a Diamonds player who probably has a few endorsements and so forth. Yeah, um, this year in particular with the new league and, and the sponsors we've picked up, girls' pays have improved, um, and which is fantastic. So the minimum, I think, is around $27,000 a year. Um, and, I mean, that's fantastic versus 50 bucks what it used to be. And uh, even, like, I think the minimum was 20 last um, previously in the, in the Trans-Tasman League. So, I mean, it's gone up another 10 grand, which is great. 
um, all the way up to, I guess, um, you know, your marquee diamond player would be sitting on a roughly, you'd think, eighty dollars to $90,000 contract. Um, add in some sponsorship stuff around that um, and payments you get for playing for the Aussie team and, and they would hopefully be clearing around 100000 a year, um, which I think is definitely getting there. Um, but I remember sitting down with um, uh, someone the other day and he said, oh, okay, so um, he's rugby background. He said, oh, so how many of the girls in, the, in your team would be on a f- four, 400K? And I was like, are you serious? I'm like, that's probably about 20 years down the track. But I guess that's what we're pushing towards. And um, hopefully one day when the girls are paid a lot of money, they can kind of look back and we look back and look at the hard work that players like Liz Ellis, Kath Cox, Sheryl McMahon did with the Players Association to be pushing this type of stuff. Um, and it's definitely going to be an ongoing battle. Jonathan Webb's Techno Motorsports is a family-owned team and company that is taking it up to the giants of the sport. They've had wins at Bathurst, but running a V8 supercars team doesn't come cheap. Can you give us some ballpark figures as to what it costs to, to do what you do? Yeah, it definitely varies. Obviously, you know, the raw costs of, of running the car and staff, flights, accommodation, all, everything else that goes into it. But then... You know, the sponsors demand a lot more. So the bigger the group, the more powerful the sponsor, then the more things need to go into uh, you know, to making it what it is. And sort of variance, I guess, really per car. Uh, we've got 25-odd cars running on the field. Somewhere between sort of three and five million is, uh, is the ballpark. It's quite a wide range, but I said it, it can change depending on everything that goes around it. You mentioned 25 cars. What's the gamut of cars that you maintain and run through the year? Yeah, so we just run the one car ourselves. Uh, Yep, just just the one and only car for us. Stick to uh, stick to that. We were two cars for a little while um, when back when I was driving. And then uh, my wife had a little boy, so she went uh, went to be mum. Meant I had to step up and, and take care of the business. So we're just back to the one. And uh, when you look back now uh, in terms of the evolution of the business and and of the racing, was there a moment where you felt like um, you know you're starting to get in over your head and, and it was all becoming a bit too much? Yeah, I think that's about uh, about the start of the year every year. That <laughs> yeah, or going into that Christmas period when you're supposed to be putting your feet up, relaxing and enjoying it. You uh, you look at the books, go through uh, yeah the bills you had to pay from last year, what you need to pay for next year, and then just dig deep to find whatever um, you can do to try and make it work for the next year. So I'm I'm hoping you know long term. I've got a wife and a kid now, and try and find you know something that's a bit more stable, but. Yeah, every year we just keep bashing away and just keep doing it and wonder why we do it. But, you know, there's some awesome highs in this sport. There's some mega lows, but just at the moment, just riding the wave. So have you always lived and breathed the sport? Yeah, for better or for worse. It, uh, I think it's in the blood. I always sort of refer to motorsport as being a bit of disease. You know, once you've got it, it's, uh, it's there for life. And I grew up around it. My, uh, my dad did it just for a bit of fun as a hobby sort of easing the cars and thought, yeah, this is a bit of fun. And then as we went along and as I got older, I just got more and more serious to to agree. Well, yeah, I was driving Vert supercars and, and then owning a team at the same time. What were some of those early memories, mate, when you first got exposed to this world? Uh, I remember particularly, you know, when I first started driving, it was a lot of crashing. Yeah, it's uh, getting out there, learning the hard way, running into a lot of things, hurting myself plenty of times. And I still think my back and neck and everything else are uh, going to kill me for the rest of my life after my first couple of years in motorsport. But just, you know, the adrenaline and everything else that with it, it's just, it's so exciting when it works. And when you're on those highs, um, there's nothing like it. Seems like a strange question, but do you have to get familiar with crashing? And taking those hits? I think to a certain degree you do. Um, you, you adapt, you know it's going to happen before it's before it actually happens and 
sometimes you're able to recover it and catch the car and, and keep it off the wall or out of the dirt or whatever it is. And then there's other times where you just know, you know it might happen seconds before, but you, you know you're in the wall and you cringe because now it's going to hurt. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed your taste of Offfield. More interviews are available now and there's many more to come. So check out offfield.co, that's off-field.co and make sure you subscribe. And there's plenty more to come for Rooster Radio too. Connect with us at roosterradio.biz. Listener.